Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am Catherine Troyer, and I'm so excited that I get to discuss this film with Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And this week, we are so excited that you're joining us for our conversation about 1993's Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. So I think we both decided that we were going to be brave and acknowledge uh, a, a truth, which is that both of us were watching this late at night and both of us were struggling mightily to stay awake. Now, I think I only fell asleep for about two seconds because I just kind of, but, it, but I don't actually think I missed anything because I think even if I'd been watching it, it still would have been confusing. But there was like, I was struggling to stay awake. Yeah. I also, this is the first time it has happened to, to me. I'll, I'll admit while doing anything for the podcast film, book, whatever. I did nod off, uh, kind of. It, it was around the time that the police officer first showed up. I, I kind of was like starting to fall asleep because I realized that this movie, I really had realized that this movie was not going to deliver on its central promise by then and had kind of, yes. I was kind of, I had kind of started to check out, but I quickly kind of woke up. So I only missed a couple like minute or so and I like rewound it. Which I, I, I rewound Again, I it, but then I didn't anything. miss I realized, and then yeah. I felt stupid for rewinding it because I was like, I just wasted two minutes of my time. It's just two minutes, but it was two minutes. I'm never going to get back yes. from this film. But I want to say, with that in mind, I actually liked this film better than some of the other Friday the 13th. Yeah, and you may not have been able you to know? tell that this was a Friday the 13th film from the title, uh, because like every one of the Friday the 13th films, this is Plagued with drama, we'll get into that uh, a little <laughs> bit later. But yeah, I honestly probably couldn't tell from our setup. But yeah, there were some better, there were a lot better moments in here than some of the previous ones we've been discussing. Although the middle really drags in this one. Yes. We can, I guess, get into that. Yeah. So let's begin with the acknowledgement that both of us thought we were going to hell and we didn't. No. So what then, Tony, is this film about? So the film begins with this really like kind of trip down memory lane almost where we watch this woman kind of going into a cabin and she proceeds to kind of act in a very, already in 1993, become very stereotypical at this point. And then it looks like she's about to get murdered by uh, Jason, but then bum bum bum, plot twist. <laughs> it's actually, she's an FBI officer. This is a raid. And then they all just like kill, yes. they kill Jason. And so he, the film begins with him dying, like, and being taken to a hospital. But quickly, uh, we learn the central conceit of this movie is that although he's dead, his soul can still live. And we'll get into the exact specifics of the canonical uh, reasons and crossovers of exactly how he is able to, how his soul is able to come back. But uh, he does, and he's able to kind of possess possess people. But in order to resurrect himself, he must find and possess a member of his bloodline. But dun 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 dun, 
he can also be killed by his surviving relatives using a, and I feel silly saying this, but it is what it is. It's a magic dagger. It's a, if you got, if you find the magic dagger, you can kill Jason and you can then send him to hell, which the movie does briefly for like five seconds. I'll just tell you that now. So you, if that's why you want to watch this movie, just look up the <laughs> clip. It's a cool shot. It's uh, there's some it cool is. effects, but uh, it is not what the movie is about. Unsurprisingly, there there is very little scholarship on Jason Goes to Hell, in part because as we've talked for about previous films, there's just less scholarship on the Friday the Thirteenth franchise because I don't think it's ever been a critical darling even if it's been a sort of fan darling but the book I'm, we have been referencing all along because it really it's literally the only book on friday the 13th is wickham clayton's see here cut kill experiencing friday the 13th and if you look in the index this film only has probably the equivalent of two total pages if you pulled every line because some of it's just like this film does it well but jason goes to hell does not right there's a lot of just like kind of the throwaway moments but there are a couple of things he says that I think are, are important. And so he says, instead of relying on cameo appearances or 3D sequences, Jason Goes to Hell again announced the finality of the series through the title. The film also tried to explain the logical gaps in the overarching story. Jason Goes to Hell applies an explanation that Jason's essence is essentially a demonic worm that uses human bodies as hosts, and only a special dagger wielded by a relative can kill him, explaining why he keeps returning from the dead. This overtly supernatural development shares similarities with the Halloween sequels. And then he talks about the fact that 1993, which is the year that Jason Goes to Hell came out, this is a quote from him, proved a low point for slasher films, with the only significant addition being Leprechaun, a film in which a leprechaun kills people in order to defend and retrieve his gold. So when that's your, like, hit film of the, the 1993, and, and Leprechaun's a fun film, but like, it's another one of those that, that has gained a cult following that I can't always uh, understand. For sure. The other thing that Clayton talks about that I think is important because it's a really insightful part of his book is he spends a lot of time talking about the fact that Friday the 13th does intriguing things in terms of the perspective of the camera. A lot of times it really is showing us the perspective of the victim in a way that, that felt very intriguing. But he says, by the time we get to Jason Goes to Hell... The eye slash camera use appears practically unwieldy. At different points, it inhabits most of the characters central to the narrative, as well as other minor characters without clear consistency. The eye camera works through people as they watch events from a distance, people who are the victims of violent action, and those who are the perpetrators of violent action. There is no clear standard for the use of the camera at this point. Slashers were desperate to regain a, a successful formula. And then I do like the sentence he says, I like to think of what ensues in Jason Goes to Hell as joyous chaos. And I feel like joyous chaos is perhaps the best word to describe Jason Goes to Hell because you could tell that they just didn't have any more bothers to give. There are times that there's inconsistency in how much blood is in a, a various scene. Mm -hmm. There are moments that they're just like, oops-a-daisy, that probably doesn't make sense. Keep filming. And there's all of these, there's no cameos by people that were meant to be cameos, except for Kane Hodder gets a cameo outside of being Jason. But there are all of these cameos of other franchises, right? Yes. So we see the Necronomicon, Freddy, uh, the claw fingers and sweater, mm -hmm. as well as the, the, the 
the dagger is also from evil the evil dead franchise as well oh yeah that's right and there's even there's there's references to various names yeah um, of people that and there's a shot where we see something that says like from antarctic trip and then it says property of and it's julia carpenter right but like we have a nice little thing the thing reference so they they managed to get in some cameos that way but it really is joyous chaos at its at its finest and worst yeah and they did a lot of these things so the evil dead nods were done without seeking any rights but they did (laughs) go to sam raimi during the filming of evil of army of the dead to grab props so oh my gosh that's so funny i guess they kind of got rights below the board for that and that was kind of a cool little that was a cool nod and it is fun to kind of reinterpret that as like Pamela Voorhees used the Book of the Dead to like keep her son alive and turn him into like this deadite figure you know what it's honestly the most compelling argument for Jason to this point like whereas I I feel like when we talked about I thought it was an astute observation that you that your the scholar highlighted about the comparisons to the Halloween franchise whereas with the Halloween franchise I think we kind of we were very critical, or I'm, I'm, uh, I'm yes. kind of, as Michael Myers became more of a magic man, uh, it kind of became sillier because his whole thing had been that he had was so grounded. In Jason, he had all, except aside from really maybe a little bit in the first one, he's always kind of been super over the top and you're like, this doesn't make sense for like a regular man. So you know what? The fact that he's like a crazy deadite, it kind of makes yeah. sense in like a fun it does way. it makes as much sense as, as anything does right yeah and there are so many like weird other like interesting constraints about this film in particular that i i think it's interesting that it comes across so kind of like slapdash because it's really like i previewed at the top all these film the filmmakers took it so seriously and really which thought, is i think my favorite part isn't it of all of these films yeah yeah yes. I, I just i want to say like so the film uh directed by adam marcus written by jay hughley and dean laurie and produced by sean s cunningham and those are really the names to kind of remember those are some of our key players here uh so originally this was pitched by the producer to kind of be a, a, a horror action comedy where he's going to battle Freddy. Obviously, did not happen in this one, did happen later down the lines. because And the reason that this idea was on the table right here was because this was the first Friday the 13th film to be released by New Line Cinemas, which owned the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And so they kind of did have the right, that was not a crazy idea that couldn't happen. However, the studio kind of balked at it at the time. They kind of got gold feet and they said, do something else right now. So they courted this guy, Adam Marcus, who was fresh out of film school, literally 23, as my age right now. Uh, He had been an editor and apprentice to Susan Cunningham uh, during post-production on Friday the 13th part two and he was kind of brought on by this producer really with just like one job two two jobs allegedly because all this is also widely disputed to this day they still get into uh cunningham and marcus still get into public disputes about this he says that uh cunningham told him marcus that he needed to get rid of the uh get rid of the effing mask (laughs) uh, jason's mask 
and also said that all of the events of Friday the 13th, Jason Takes Manhattan, be ignored, and kind of also most of the other events aside from the first film really be ignored. Marcus, however, rebukes that claim, asserting that Cunningham didn't have that level of control, which is like so shady. So, so shady. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Although he does, it is kind of interesting to note that Mask really doesn't feature very prominently in the film. So kind of in a way, maybe, maybe he did have that much control over it. That's interesting. You know, to me, it's not the mask. It's that I, and again, I have to appreciate this film from that angle of joyous chaos, but other films have done it. It's the strings of hair. Yeah. It's like his five long strands of hair that it's just like, it is really hard to be taking this seriously if that's what I'm supposed to be doing at this point. It, no, I totally agree. It's just the which silly. is Which was nice, right? That we then go to other bodies, right? A- absolutely. We kind of get to weird, go, have but, his out of body stuff. Also, yeah. Yes. So it was originally pitched as kind of Jason Voorhees' brother, Elijah Voorhees, digging up the body, eating heart, becoming supernatural guy, doing killing spree. But then Hughley was brought on to flesh out Marcus's idea into a larger script. Because originally, uh, and originally, he kind of written the character of Stephen Friedman to be Tommy Jarvis. However, the studio informed him that they didn't own the right to that character. In fact, oh my they didn't own the rights to a lot of things within the Friday the 13th franchise, including the Friday the 13th franchise name. They didn't have the right to that. They, in fact, so only wild. had the rights to certain components from the first film. This is according to a Fangoria article. They only had the rights to Jason Voorhees, Pamela Voorhees, The Camp, and The Lake. So everything from that was kind of changed, reworked, and you kind of get this story here. And they kind of settled Marcus's kind of vision was like he wanted to create the most deliberately stereotypical opening to the film as possible to subvert audiences' expectations and then kind of take them into this crazy world. Don't know if he delivered on the back half of that, but my expectations were certainly subverted with the opening scene. Yes, so you and I have have long upheld the the claim that a cold opening is is rarely worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that particularly when you start on like cold opening number four, there may be uh, that may be a sign something's really wrong. This, I think, is the one cold opening that just delighted me to my soul. Because at first, I, you know, they set it up so you are thinking it's going to be, like you said, by 1993, as well as by, you know, nine films into the franchise, a very familiar series of things that don't make sense, right? Like, why is she looking around in the dark before she tries to turn on her light switch? Why is her hair up in a baseball cap like a weirdo? You know, like, why is she, like, taking a a shower in this, like, clearly gross place? And then, you know, like, I will admit, like, it startled a laugh out of me when she, you know, because I'm already like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. He's there one second. He's he's literally not the next. Then he's there again. And then when everyone popped up and and she, you know, dives in over the barrier and we realize that this is a giant sting, I, I did not anticipate that. And that that was amusing, right? Because it told me the mood that I needed to be prepared for for this film. It, it definitely cued you in that this was going to do something different, and I it does. I mean, this our it's a real shift for the franchise. It does pretty much ignore everything uh, from it. In fact, the one of the lead uh, the lead actors uh, joked 
not actually, I guess it's not a joke. He said he only watched the first movie in preparation for this because he felt like everybody on the film was so convinced they were doing something different uh, that he didn't need to see anything else besides that. It sounds like you have a cricket in your house. I do. I do have a cricket. That's amazing. I feel like it's perfectly timed for our exploration of Friday the 13th. (laughs) Well, it's, your, it's your own little version of the woods. It, it is. It is my own little version of the woods, which is I, I, I'm I'm glad it's fitting for our conversation. Sometimes when I'm trying to sleep, it's less uh, ideal. <laughs> <laughs> That's, so funny. That's a joke, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look so sad. Uh, so so they didn't have a whole bunch of rights. My question is, because you said that they, they truly thought they were doing something different, um, which is my favorite part of. Because everyone has said that since like movie two, yep. right? Oh yeah. So what is it that they thought that they were doing that was different? Just just the fact that they it was clearly not a Friday the Thirteenth film, literally, or yeah, or and, what? And I and okay. I and I think also they they definitely were pretty they were pretty hyped, uh, kind of about the mystical element of it, and and the Marcus in particular uh, has really. In the years since, he has really just been like beating the horse about. He's like, this is the best one because it, it establishes the Evil Dead connection, and 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 that is why. And so, you know, I, I really honestly okay. don't. It's really just these kind of little things. I think if you really engage with most of the rest of the movie, it becomes difficult to make that statement. And so let's 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 attempt to engage with the rest of the movie. Sure. And I want to ask one more question. So For you sure. said that, um, so Marcus was 23 when he was on this film. That's right. But you said that he had worked on number two. He was an apprentice. Yes. I guess he probably wasn't as young as I thought he was because we got through the first like eight films in like three, in like, very, four in like years. a really quick yeah. succession. Okay. Okay. So he may, I, I, let me. But he me, still would have been pretty young. two seconds. Right? What yeah. year was that? Yeah. He would have been, that, that actually was pretty, that's 81. Uh, he would have been oh, wow. very young. So he was like, I guess, like, like a kid, like a, a child. Like, yeah, like He 10. was a child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So that's an interesting uh, legacy to add to this. So let's talk through, let's let's talk, start starting with one of the things that you said, which is that this character is Steven. Because he definitely sort of felt like more of the final guy than Jessica did the final girl, right? He was very... Um, For sure canny and you know like was definitely figuring it out way ahead of time he literally jumped out of his handcuffs you know like he he definitely was um set up to be more of the main character than the sister and and what niece of of jason were meant to be so that's interesting that you say that they were trying to sort of establish him as tommy jarvis 2.0 because that makes sense i mean and literally they wanted him to be tommy jarvis from like parts That's four so through funny. six. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, and honestly, that would have, I don't know. I liked Tommy enough, but I don't yes. think it would have been enough to save the, save the experience or slash what no. they have the character then proceed to do. Correct. But I do think it's really important to acknowledge that, that this franchise from the beginning, and, and some of this was because things were tricksy with Adrian King, right, for number two. But this franchise has been trying from from almost the start to create our, our dichotomy, right, to create our, our final girl 
killer dynamic in the same way that that Nightmare on Elm Street has Nancy. And they have just failed continually, right? I think they came closest with Tommy, but we have to to ask ourselves what it means that that our final girl and the most successful final girl in the Friday the 13th franchise is a guy. But the one that had the like Carrie-esque supernatural, you know, she was the, she could move things with her mind. Like that also just kind of didn't work, right? Like it just time and again, it feels like that they just can't figure out that dynamic. It's interesting then, I guess, I guess to kind of carry that point further that then the filmmaker Marcus focuses in so much on Evil Dead, another franchise that kind of features a final guy, which I guess could kind of kind of interesting. I don't know if the film Yeah, I I, it is I guess it's interesting. (laughs) I don't (laughs) Yeah. It it's interesting, but again, if we if we go back to to the the phrase that I'm I'm claiming from Clayton um of joyous chaos, I'm not sure that I can and it sounds like you're kind of trying to get to this too, that I don't know if we can claim that any of that is intentional, right? It just yeah. feels like they they threw some stuff to the wall, hoped some of it would stick, were pleasantly surprised, and then just kept rolling. And and that's from everything to like, why is the, the Voorhees house still here? You know, I mean, there was just like, there were so many moments that you could just tell that they were like, keep going, we'll just get through, which then again makes me so delighted that they truly see this as just like this outstanding product within the franchise because it's just like such a a weird mix because there's a moment so when the coroner is doing the autopsy before he eats the heart there they the shots because of the editing in one shot he has no blood on his face in another shot his face is covered in blood but he hasn't started eating the heart yet in another shot it's like partial and this is this is sequential and then he eats the heart like it's just like it's a continuity error that's not even like a gentle one. Like it is a, a blatant in your face. This is definitely just something that they didn't bother to really to worry about, right? Yeah. But then there are these moments that you just that are, are I feel like are homages to previous films in the sequence. But for me, and this is why I enjoyed this film more than some of the others, felt like they were aware of the ridiculousness, right? Whereas some of the other films gave us these things that I think that they were trying to present as straight, but that were just so weirdly, bizarrely humorous. So a really good example is the the pairing of the the woman, Joey, who's the, the diner owner, and her lover, who's Leslie Jordan, right? Like any time that you have Leslie Jordan playing a character that's supposed to be straight, first off, but also like, you know, a, a tough guy, you just, you know that it's it has to be being set up for laughs, right? Like you just wouldn't cast him otherwise. And I think the film was more cognizant of the ridiculousness than some of the other Jason films have been about yeah. just the like, we're going to show you some weird characters. I think we've definitely just, for a while, we kind of talked about, we were like, oh, are, are these human, are these human people in the same way yes. that like yes. something from like the Halloween, Halloween always tries to, mostly tries to give you human grounded victim characters. Whereas something like, nightmare is is has more fun with some of like its victims and this had always kind of teetered the line i think we've just descended into full character with this we've got like the, the diner scenes are quite fun i do love the guy who's come back and he's made it his own mission to just like convince everybody that that jason is still around rightly so it's a fun it, it, and you know I do still think that we take way, way too long to get to the really good stuff 
which happens yeah. right in the final act. We get a whole lot of like Jason possessing people kind of back and forth and then being reborn into like a weird, freaky, demonic infant thingy. Do that. It's like it, by the time we <laughs> do get to that final basement in there and we're about to kill him, the movie has just really started to get going and you're having fun. No, that's it. That's yeah. And I, and I, I think, I think the film struggles in part with the fact that, and this is true of any film that decides that it's the best in the franchise and it's quote, doing something really different is it's building on a non-existent history, right? But doing so in a way that we should, that it makes us feel like we should know that history because there's all these lines about like, you know why uh, Jason's coming back for you, Diane. And you're like, why? And it takes a good like 10 or 15 minutes before you find out. Anything. And then, yeah. you know, yes. And then they're like, we have to be really careful about Jessica. And you're like, who the F's Jessica? Yeah. Um, And then, and like, and there's a hint that we should understand the backstory of Steven and Jessica and kind of what led them there. And there's a lot of those sort of moments where the film is is asking us to to have a whole different history but because they literally can't reference any of the history, nor do they apparently want to, of the previous films, it, it becomes non-existent even more so. I mean, it would already be non-existent, right? But, like, you can't have references to a history no one knows about. Yeah, because... Um, that just defeats the purpose. They try to set up that his half, his half-sister, Diana, daughter, yes. Jessica, Stephanie. Just, yeah, it's a whole... It's and a like, lot. The math but doesn't, doesn't work, work in, right? Yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. if Jason was born in 47... Now, admittedly, Diane could have been born later, but, you know, Pamela had to die by 1980 and she was kind of long and tooth by then. She does not look in 93, right? She would have had to been like 50 something. She's the same age. It looks like the actress is the same age as Jessica. So there, there's just like, again, these moments where you can tell that even as they're trying to, to give you this rich, steep history, there's just a whole bunch of stuff that they just don't care about having make logical sense. But there are some really just i think funny moments in here that again show that they they do have a sense of humor the little segment where we see the american crimes and they're like this man is dead this man's dead is it related and then that like stamp of like yes pops up like you know there are these moments where you are seeing that that they are aware of the the sheer goobiness of of what they're doing right and also just the sort of playing into our obsession culturally with finding out about these stories, no matter how ridiculous they are. And I think that that in those moments it shined, but you're right. You already don't really care about Jason because you never get to hear him and you never really get to see him. But now now we literally don't even get to see him. And I think that that makes it hard to be interested when it's a Jason movie that doesn't even give us Jason. Yeah, it is very difficult. Yeah, you could to, to kind of care about a lot of these canon fire characters who are at this point so charactery. But the stuff it does with the Jason character is quite unique when Jason is on screen. Yes. And the deaths are, as always, um, fun and ridiculous and impossible. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Joey, the, again, the diner owner, gets, like, her face punched in or elbowed in, right? So there, there are these moments that you're like, okay, they know that this is ridiculous. I'm here for that. Yeah. I guess it's just is knowing them being like it is ridiculous it is kind of ridiculous enough yeah. to justify the kind of like laziness of it it was kind of it's inter it was interesting they kind of rejected uh the initial script because they called it uh, a hodgepodge that's a direct quote and they oh. they brought on more writers to 
fix it up and clean it up. And I, I just, you know, if they they describe the original script as a hush, yeah, and this is what I, got filmed, I'd love to see. The I have a draft. lot of questions. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't even. I can't even imagine. Yeah. What could it even be? Because this this is like almost literally the definition of a hodgepodge. That's so wild to me. I also want to talk about there are a couple things that happen in this film that I think are worth noting because they're they feel like throwaway elements, but they actually complicate and in some instances even queer the text in ways that I think are are worth discussing. And the first one is that scene where Jason is still in the coroner's body, but the coroner has captured the uh, one deputy and has like stripped him naked and and like tied him down with leather, and then he shaves him right and shaves off his mustache, which I think is played for laughs in some respects because like Jason is so particular about um, you know his bodies that he has to have them be clean shaven, I guess. But there's also this weird like homoerotic layer that has certainly been present in other slasher films, but that is weird in this one because Jason is not a torturer. He is not someone that that locks someone or ties someone down, right? He's an opportune, a killer of opportunity. And so I wasn't quite sure, again, other than just the for kicks and giggles, what that what that scene was supposed to do because then we have this other homoerotic scene also between a black character and a white character yeah. where um With the when they're in the prison the fingers right yes yeah. yes that was a really weird scene that really grabbed my attention so i was tuned i was tuned out some of yeah. some of it but i i knew exactly where you were going with this cuz i was i checked back in fiercely for that scene cuz i was just so confused with what was going on and this i mean in order this this ritual that is enacted this exchange yes. of information via breaking of bones and it was very sexual right yes. the camera angle had these like extreme close-ups of him stroking the other guy's hand before he'd break it and then like you said it was ritualistic because he'd be like you know are you sure you want this and he's like yes and then he's like are you sure because you know that's the price of knowledge and i'm like according According to whom? Like, where is this coming from? And even the quote explanation yeah. that he had to have a broken hand to be able to escape makes no sense for the amount of time that that scene lingers on the screen. It's a really fascinating scene that doesn't, it, it really, it, it doesn't, I don't know if it necessarily makes any sense in the context yeah. of the film or needed to be there, but it's a really interesting a really interesting scene and kind of like a it is an allegory scene. for the price of knowledge for sure yes uh, and i'll slash and again very humble erotic right? and the forbidden yes, yeah yes. i yeah i'll give it i will so and i guess i'll give it that it captured attention in a film that that is true i was i did and i i might sorry friday fans i was bored through uh quite a bit so when i just remembered when things caught my attention and that one certainly did I think that the entire character of Creighton Duke is interesting, certainly underdeveloped, certainly not doing the things I want to see, because I think that he could have been much more interesting, um, particularly, again, because of the casting and the fact that he's showing up in this small town. But we have been taught that there is often a character, the Harbinger, right, who who has the warning. But what's interesting about this film is that Multiple times, Duke says, I know exactly how to do this, but I'm not going to tell you 
because you haven't paid my price. And of course, sometimes that price is $500,000 and sometimes that price is a, is a broken hand. But that's, that could have been, I think, played into much more intriguingly, right? Like we really could have seen that go somewhere, I think, much more fascinating. Instead, we just get these weird moments where, where we're not sure what to do with Duke because I think that the film doesn't know what to do with Duke. So one of my favorite lines I was telling you that you didn't remember, which is super okay because it was the weirdest line yeah. I may have ever heard. There's a scene um, when Creighton Duke is being interviewed for that American Crimes uh, TV show. And the interviewer says, yeah, first, so the interviewer begins by saying, like, we're going to get to have a behind the scenes look at this compound that no one's ever seen before. And then, of course, we don't actually get to see the compound. We just see this weird moment where they're drinking pink lemonade, which is just such a weird detail. And the interviewer goes, I'm going to say a couple of words to you, and I want you to say the first thing that comes to mind. Then Duke says, okay. The interviewer says, Jason Voorhees. And then Duke responds with a line that I just don't know what this means, but it just doesn't sound okay. He says, that makes me think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut. And I don't, I mean, there's a sexual layer to that. That's pretty hard to ignore. Yeah. But like, I don't understand. And then it just like, and the, and this, and then the interview just kind of cuts, right? And I feel like that's what Duke was, right? He was this like moment of chaos that was never used fully. At one point he kidnaps a child, he right? Does. He kidnaps baby Stephanie. And that again could have been really interesting because there were some overtones, undertones, just tones. <laughs> um, to Candyman, right? Um, and so, and another 1990s film, right? Tony Todd originally auditioned for this film, if you can believe it, and didn't get it, Did or he not. didn't want it. Uh, I don't have that information in front of okay. me, but I do know he originally auditioned. Um, That's interesting. Let me double check. Let me see if I can find the answer really quick. Keep going, and if I can, yeah. Or so he would have been a he would have been an interesting choice. But I, I, it would have been underutilized, right? Not that he's not been underutilized a lot, but it just would have been, yeah, I can see how they would have thought to cast him. Actually, it would have been really interesting because Candyman came up before, so then it would have almost felt like another weird cross. Do you see, did he get it? Did he t not accept it or did he not end up getting it? It appears, so he auditioned for the role of Duke, but obviously went to Stephen uh, Williams. And I can't see any more information about this, it does appear that it is available on page 92 of Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th by <laughs> Peter Brock. So if anybody out there has that uh, book, you can go and find oh yourself gosh. the answers and read more about yes. it. But uh, until this time, the free uh, thing I'm looking at online will only tell me where to find the information. And, and that character, that bounty hunter idea, the sort of like lone wolf, again, you know, He's not being set up as the nemesis of, of Jason, because Jason actually doesn't even, like, know that this dude's out to get him. And so it was just another layer, right, that, that had so much potential. Like, it would have been great if, first off, if we'd, if we'd gone to hell. For uh, sure. But if, like, For sure. this bounty hunter had, had journeyed down to hell with him, right? Like, imagine if it had been, like, Jason goes to Dante's Inferno. Yeah. I would watch... Him make his way through the seven circles of hell just for the record being chased I by to see that this like crazy like yes. bounty hunter who equally has like no morals only desire to like bring justice to to this that would have been more that would have been very interesting ah uh, alas 
alas. And because we don't have any of that, right? Like, how does Duke know all this stuff, right? Like, not even that's mentioned. But again, it's all sort of alluded to as though if we had watched this imaginary film in between, we too would know the backstory, right? Like, it feels like a film that when you, if you, if that was the only Friday the 13th film you watched, you would assume, oh, I bet that all these plot holes are covered in, other in the prior films. Yeah, instead not. it's just, no, it's not. And then we get to the end where Jessica sort of has to save the day, but doesn't really, it's mainly Steven. Um, and then Steven almost gets dragged down to hell, which again, might have been interesting, but instead, you know, at the very last moment, they they suck Jason under. And then we we are set up for, for Friday, uh, Friday versus Jason. But I think you're right that it sets things up for that. But that's nothing even the next film. No, I was about to say I, that is Jason X is is the next in the franchise, and it's not until 2003 that we will get the yes. Freddy uh, versus Jason crossover, which you can listen to our episode uh, about on on stream. But and Jason Ten is he goes to space, right? That, that's right. I hope, and okay. I, you know what. Okay. I, f- I hope. So I hope. I, I have actually seen that one, and it is set in space. Okay, thank goodness. Um, I because after yes. Manhattan and I know. Uh, hell, I, know. I I I just am like kind of expecting them to yeah. not be able to deliver on the premise. So you know what? I'll, I, if I'm gonna trust you, you say you've seen it, so I yes. I'm excited then to I have, actually but, like, go to space. I think I saw it when it came out, so like I don't remember anything other than it was like the first. I think it may have been the first Jason film I saw. Because it just was, you know, like, out when I was a kid. So that's how I saw it. For sure. But I do want to say, you know, I, I was reading something recently by Kevin Wetmore, who's one of the, the scholars out there that I just have such an academic crush on um, because I just like everything he does. And he was talking about, you know, the he was trying, and I think succeeding a little bit, to explain how the not arriving in Manhattan until an hour in actually allows it to become a film, a slasher film like other slasher films that grounds itself in high school in a little bit more, you know, ways than than summer camp. I was there for that argument, but you're right. Like, it's been intriguing to have had the last two films in the titles promise things that, that are actually not the most significant parts of, of the film, which I think is is wild to me. But that's that's Friday the 13th for you, right? That's Friday the 13th. Or... Not Friday the Thirteenth. It's, it's Jason goes to hell. Doesn't the get final, to be the final yeah. Friday. You could... So is that why Jason X is also going to not be Friday the Thirteenth because they don't have they don't have the rights to the title? I do believe so. I I I believe they don't get the they don't get the right stuff officially figured out. I I'm not sure if it's with the 2003 film or with the remake, but I it is not until a little bit later. I think you're right. We'll all, we'll, we're going to have a we'll talk Friday with... the 13th this in 2023, so we can just reenact our own film. Oh, yes. Very good. Yeah. When is October that? Is that October? So October it's, it's 13th? O- it's October. Oh I know. I'm so excited. Uh, so we'll have to think about what we're doing, but it probably will not be a Friday the 13th. I'm, I'm glad we're nearing the end of our journey, although eventually there will be a TV show for us to watch. Wow. A glowing uh, ring of endorsement yeah. for, for the franchise <laughs> we've been working our way through. It's... It's just been so wildly inconsistent. Yeah. And it goes back to what you said, right? That every single person believes that their film is groundbreaking, doing something else that, that sets it apart from the franchise and the best of its bunch. And, and like none of the other franchises we've looked at have had that sort of 
wild backstory. Yeah, every now and then you'll have like those like one or two filmmakers like who will take a franchise and be like, it's all wrong, everything's broken. Uh, But that usually comes in the remake, not within the like main continuity. It's interesting to see the creators arguing with each other within like the main continuity of a franchise for kind of like authority over Jason. But the funny thing is he'll none of the creators will ever have authority over Jason because no. it's he's been so appropriated by fan, the fan community which is a blessing and a curse it means they'll live on forever but it also means that nobody will ever be happy with anything they make I think it's it's odd that but also accurate that like even in a Friday the 13th film that we like, we're like, it was a hot mess, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So I realized that this episode sounds an awful lot like we're saying this is the worst film we've ever seen, but it's not. um, And it's not even necessarily the worst Friday the 13th film we've ever seen. It's just, again, to quote Clayton, joyous chaos. And if you can accept that that's what it's going to be, I think you'll be okay. And I think that might explain why my partner thought this was one of the worst films that she's ever seen in her entire life. Because she actually likes the Friday the 13th films. Not all of them, right? But one, six, seven, even a little bit of, of Jason Takes Manhattan. So, like, I think that if you if you are a franchise lover or if, that this film is going to be maybe not your cup of tea. For but for sure. me, as someone that that is just trying to find the joy, there were moments, right? And, and But I am also glad that we only do our Jason Friday the 13th episodes every other because it means that we can have a palate cleanser and we're actually doing something we've never done before which is terribly exciting what are we doing tony so we are going to be venturing into our first non-fiction book which you may be asking what how non-fiction horror uh well we're going to be diving into monsters a fan's dilemma by claire dierria Deidre, how do I? How did <laughs> I you? Wait, oh, oh I no! That. There's a lot of e's and r's. I know. Deidre, de 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 that I first heard her on um, talking about her work. They invited her on there and she gave such a fantastic interview on there. She was such a great subject that I was like, I absolutely want to check out her full book. I ate it up this summer and I quickly, I said, I said to you, Katie, we have to talk about this. Um, I think, I know it's a bit different than what we've done before, but I, I think it gets into kind of real world monsters, fan culture and fan culture. Uh, in a way that we'll, we will have a lot to talk about on the podcast in yes. relation to nightmares and horror yes. and conversations about society. And so much of our, of our conversation has been about sitting at that uncomfortable line as an academic and a fan, right? And consuming this thing that is, that is meant to traumatize us and also meant to show us, you know, the darker underbelly. So I think that I'm really looking forward to discussing this book. Well, prepare to be further traumatized as an academic and writer because she <laughs> certainly has some monstrous things to say about us. So uh, oh, definitely okay. strap Good to in. know. <laughs> Yay, I'm so excited. 
So hopefully you all will take a, a gander at that book, read it ahead of time. If not, you'll dive into our episode and sort of get to hear that. So please be sure to read that for next time and then know that we'll be returning back to Friday the 13th thereafter. I want to give a shout out, as I always try to do, to Jackson O'Brien, because Jackson takes out all those points where we're like, oh, yeah, maybe we should look that up before we keep speaking, <laughs> and makes it look like we actually just always know the words that we want to say. So thank you so much, Jackson. It's true. And to those of you thank listening, you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and to those of you listening, thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spook day.